If you want to get your Bibles open at John 18, we'll get there in a moment. It's been, if you hadn't noticed, the Jubilee weekend. And we've been celebrating a monarch who has reigned for 70 years. And yesterday, part of what our family did in Walkley at the little celebration there was create a crown. So this is not my own work. This is the work of Elsie. She's done a fabulous job with this. And so we made a crown because the Jubilee has been about celebrating all that the Queen has done, marking her reign and looking at what is involved in that. And so an essential part of that is a crown. And we'll come back to that crown later. Have you, have you got some, some other people might have crowns in the room as well. Anyone else got a crown? Anyone else got a crown? Joe Barker's got one. Lots of, lots of adults. I thought the kids were meant to be getting, not the adults, but anyway. Lots of crowns. This is really important to think about, and we'll come back to this crown later because it's going to mean something to us. But we've been celebrating this for the Queen, and today we're going to look at Jesus as King as well. And we're going to ask this question, is Jesus King? Now, Elsie again walked in whilst I was... Um, preparing for this, and saw my notes and went, yeah, of course he is. I was like, okay, I might need to fill that out a little bit on Sunday morning. So I am going to fill it out a little bit, but we're going to come to the trial before Pontius Pilate. And that trial is asking the question, is Jesus king? And so we're going to look at the answer to that question from a few different perspectives. But we're also going to look at what sort of king Jesus is. So Let's not hold back anymore. Let's get into the passage and have a read. So we're going to go from chapter 18. I'm going to read from verse 28. Then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, morning and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, the Jews did not enter the palace. They wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to the asked. What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would have not handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, the Jews objected. This happened so the words Jesus had spoken, indicating the kind of death he was going to die, would be fulfilled. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied. It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it you've done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Pilate asked. With this, he went out again to the Jews and said, I find no basis for a charge against him, but it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. 
Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in a rebellion. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jews insisted, We have a law, and according to that law, he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. When he heard this, he was even, when Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you'd have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which is in Aramaic, Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over them to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. This is the trial of Jesus. Being brought before the Roman governor of the time, Pontius Pilate. And this trial is here to establish truth. That's what trials should do. Establish what is true. And this trial is established to set up this big question. Is Jesus king? The Jews are convinced that he's not. The chief priests are convinced that he's not. We read that in verse 30. He's a criminal. We're in verse 7 of chapter 19. It says this, we have a law and according to that law he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. He's no king. He's not the son of God. He's a blasphemer and he's deserving of death. It's a resounding no. He's not king. He's not God. He's a criminal deserving of death. So they can't kill him. Under Roman law, they have no power to crucify him. So they brought him to Pilate to say, you need to find this man guilty and execute him and crucify him. And Pilate looks at the evidence. He's looking to see, does this man deserve to die? Is this man a king? 
But what he finds is he's not a criminal. We see that throughout. Three times he says, I can find no charges against this man. I can't justify crucifying him. He's not guilty. He's not a criminal, according to what I can see, according to the evidence that the Jews have presented before him. But he also must also conclude that he's not a king, because a king would be a threat to Caesar. And Pontius Pilate, as the Roman ruler, as the Roman governor, would have a responsibility to, to make sure this person is put to death. But he doesn't think he's a king. He doesn't think Jesus is a threat. And we can guess what, what, has, what has he decided? What has Pontius Pilate decided? He's not a criminal. He's not a king. What is he then? Is he a good moral teacher? Or maybe he thinks Jesus is just a little bit crazy. And I'm wondering, this is a, a famous trilemma that C.S. Lewis put before us. The writer of the Narnia stories, but also a great theologian. And he talked about there's only three options. Whether Jesus is God, Jesus is mad, or Jesus is evil. Or in our case today, is he king criminal or crazy. But this is what C.S. Lewis says. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God, or for our purposes today, his claim to be king. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg. Or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And this is C.S. Lewis's conclusion. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic or a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God, the view that he was and is king. Pontius Pilate had maybe put him in the category of crazy, maybe good moral teacher, but C.S. Lewis says there's no space for that. And actually John's written this gospel so that we might believe he is the son of God. That we might believe he is king. The whole point of this evidence being presented to us is so that we may be convinced that Jesus is king. Are you convinced of it? Elsie is. Is Jesus king? Of course he is. But what about you? Is he king? The claim of the Gospel of John is that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus really is the supreme king of all time and eternity. But what kind of king is he? Let's go back to the start of John's gospel, where John so beautifully describes Jesus. And it says this, In the beginning was the Word, 
and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. What kind of king is this? This is a king of all time and eternity. This is a king that is God, the king that pre-existed time. This is the word made flesh. This is our king. And Jesus also says this, doesn't he? Verse 36 of chapter 18. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. What kind of king of Jesus is Jesus? Well, he's a very different king to any other king that has ever lived. He's a very different king to any other queen that may have reigned for 70 years. He's a different sort of king altogether. Um, we're going to look at four H's to describe our king very quickly. We're going to look at him being a heavenly king. We're going to look at him being a humble king. We're going to look at Jesus being a humiliated king. And we're going to look at him being a holy king. Let's start with heavenly king. And we're going to turn to Colossians. Look at that. Colossians 1 verse 15. He is a, he's a completely different sort of king. This is our king. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things. And in him... All things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on heaven or things, in, things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. He is a heavenly king. He is a king of a completely different kingdom. He's a king beyond Pilate's comprehension. My kingdom is not of this world, he says. Pilate's probably pushing me into the crazy category. But Jesus is speaking truth. It's a completely different kingdom. He's a different type of king. He's a king holding all things together. He's a king who created everything. Everything was created for him and through him. He is a heavenly king. But he's also a humble king. Now imagine, if you would, arriving back at your house this afternoon to find the queen on your doorstep. The physical discomfort has been overcome. She's arrived at your house, and as she leaves, she says, one has cleaned one's toilets for you. And you think, wow, the queen, who's reigned for 70 years, probably never cleaned a toilet in her life, has stooped 
has humbled herself to clean my toilets. Wow, what humility. We would consider that a huge drop in role. She's the queen. She shouldn't be cleaning our toilets. She should be focusing on reigning and getting extra marmalade sandwiches to put in her handbag. She's got priorities to focus on. But no, she's come to your house to serve you in a particular way and clean your stinky loose. Wow. Let's go to Philippians 2, because I think I can find something that's even bigger in terms of a drop. Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, to kept hold of, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, of a, a slave, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. We would not expect our reigning monarch in this country to come round and clean our loos. Let us not lose sight of how far our king has stooped for us. This heavenly king is a humble king who made himself nothing In a week, maybe two weeks' time, we'll get to the cross in detail. And even today, we're going to get there. But let's not lose the majesty of the incarnation of God becoming flesh for us. You see, without that, where would the cross be? And yet the God of all time and eternity took on flesh for you and me. He stooped. He humbled himself, made himself a slave, made himself nothing. What kind of king is Jesus? He is a humble king. But even more than that, he's a king who allows himself to be humiliated. Can you imagine the queen, after she's finished cleaning the loos on the doorstep, and you and your family begin to mock her? Ha! <laughs> You call yourself a queen. You just clean my loose. That is ridiculous. What kind of queen are you? What are you do? You've even got a bit of bleach on your lovely blue dress. It's all spotted. Now you look ridiculous. And those rubber gloves. Uh, we wouldn't even think about it. Let alone do it. And yet we have this scene here. Where our king who's made himself nothing, who is a heavenly king, who reigns supreme, who has all power and authority. The one whose words spring into being a life. And yet he stands as those 
who he sustains, who he gives life to, who he gives breath to, and allows them to use that very breath and that very life to humiliate him. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in purple and went up to him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him in the face. The chapter earlier, we've seen Jesus merely say, I am, and a whole battalion stepped back. He speaks his own name, and the power vested in that results in possibly hundreds of well-trained men stepping back, either in fear or confronted with the power of God. At any moment, from this point onwards, Jesus is able, in a word, to defeat those who mock him, to restrain those who nail his hands to the cross. He could do it easily, but this is our king. He's not one who uses power for his own means or his own benefit. He's one who's ready to be humbled and one who's ready to be humiliated for you and me. The sustainer of the whole world is sustaining the very people who are mocking him as he stands there. Such is his love. Such was the joy set before him. He was ready to endure it for you and for me. We also learn this. He is a holy king. Even Pilate finds him not guilty. No charges. The only charges the Jews could bring against him was that he was a blasphemer. He said he was the son of God, but we know that to be true. They couldn't find anything else. Why? Because our king is a holy king. Totally and utterly blameless. It's hard for us to see what that truly means. Because holiness isn't just about purity, it's about separateness and differentness. And Jesus as a man, we get glimpses into that glory, into that holiness throughout the gospel. But Isaiah, in Isaiah 6, he sees the king of glory, this holy king. And this is what he writes down afterwards. I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and two they covered their feet. And with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. One holy was not enough. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorpost and threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. 
Isaiah glimpses in a vision the glory and the holiness of God. And what is his reaction? Woe to me, I cried. I'm ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Have you seen the King? Have you seen the Lord Almighty? Have you seen his glory? Have you seen his holiness? Have you seen his beauty and his majesty? Isaiah glimpses it. And his cry is this, woe to me. I'm a man of unclean lips. In other words, I deserve to die. Bring on the punishment. I've seen the Holy One. I know what I'm like. I know what I deserve. Romans 2.23 says this, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We fall short of the holiness of God. Now, I'm going to ask you to do something for me. I want you to work out your relative holiness to Jesus. Okay, so let's imagine this stage is where Jesus is standing. This is the throne room of God. This is ultimate holiness. And the further away you get from the throne room represents the reduction in holiness. So you might want to place yourself in the room. There's some of you who think you're amazing. Maybe you're standing here, you're leaning on the stage because you're that holy. Yeah, maybe some of you have got a slightly more accurate assessment of yourself and you're pushing yourself a bit further down the hall. Some of you, God bless you, are looking at other people and saying, well, I'm, I think I'm ahead of them. <laughs> I don't want you to do that. We're looking at Jesus. We're looking at his holiness and his perfection. Where are you? Where are you? You see, I think Isaiah helps us here. Because Isaiah said, you know something? I'm not even in the same room. He had a vision of the holiness of God. And he knew he couldn't be in the same room. Until we understand what type of king we worship and his true holiness, we'll think we deserve to be in the same room. Possibly. But Isaiah says, this, Woe to me, I'm a man of unclean lips. When we see Jesus as our holy king, we all say the same thing we're guilty. We deserve punishment. But we see this as well in Isaiah. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he'd taken with tongues from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. In this Old Testament vision, faced with the holiness of God, Isaiah is about to be commissioned 
And this vision, he is atoned for. His sins are made up for. Now, last weekend, we found ourselves in mid-Wales on the coast at a place called Abadavi on the estuary in a strong breeze. And despite recommended action by myself and my wife to not take a football into the sea, it still happened. That football was lost within five minutes, blown away across to much stress and duress. Now, the person responsible for that shall remain nameless. But we talked about it, and that person wanted to make up for it, wanted to atone for it. It wasn't their ball. So they bought a new one to make up for it. They atoned. We're not talking about footballs here. We're talking about us being objects of God's wrath by our very nature and unable to make atonement for that. Unable to make up for our failings and our falling shorts. Unable to bring ourselves into the room, let alone onto the stage to be with Jesus. We cannot make up for our wrongs or rights. We can't even begin to try with our rights to make up for our wrongs. It's not going to happen. But our humble, heavenly, humiliated and holy king he has done it. He has taken away your sin and your shame. He has made atonement. He has made up for your failing so that actually there is freedom to come and join the king in his throne room. We can come with confidence and freedom in the throne, into the throne room of a holy king. This is our king. What a king. But I want to ask this question again before we finish. Is Jesus king? John is clear. And John wants us to know and be convinced he is the king. But I want to ask it again and land it in a different way. Is Jesus your king? Is he really king? You see, if he is king, then we're not. And one thing that comes through in this child is that Jesus always makes it personal. We saw that in his interactions with, with Pilate. Is that what you think, that I'm the king of the Jews, or is that what someone else has told you? He's not letting Pilate get in away with some general judgment. He's saying, what do you really think, Pilate? How does it affect your life? And in that vein... Because of the grace of God and love for you guys, I don't want us to get away today just celebrating this general glorious truth that Jesus is king. Because it has to get personal. Is Jesus the king of you? Of your heart? Is he the king of your life? Is he the king of your finances? Is he the king king of your time? Is he the king of your work? Does he get the biggest say in all of your decisions? Because we can say, 
course it's obvious Jesus is king. But that's got to work its way through into our lives. You see, we quite like being king, don't we? Now, kids and adults with crowns, this is a good time to put your crown back on because we're making the point that actually our default, what we automatically do is that we want to be king. We want to be in control of our lives. But if we take a step back from this trial, what it can help us do is understand what's going on in our heart. You see, in this trial, it should be a battle for truth. It should be a fight for truth. That's what trials are about. But as we see, there's a miscarriage of justice. Jesus is crucified. The truth is he did not deserve that. But truth was lost because the battle actually was for power. To maintain the steady state. To maintain comfort. See, the Jews didn't want to lose power to Jesus. They weren't ready to bow the knee because the chief priests were in control and they liked it. So they weren't objective in considering Jesus' claims. Pilate loved being a Roman governor. And he could see the Jews were getting at him, trying to say, this is a threat to Caesar. You're no friend of Caesar. Pilate's about to lose power and lose the control that he's got. And that's why he sends Jesus to be crucified. He's not interested in truth, really. What is truth, he says. He's interested in power and control. We like to keep the crown on because we're interested in power and control of our own lives. What stops us from seeking or seeing the truth about who Jesus is? What stops us from Jesus being the king of our hearts? Not wanting to lose control, not wanting to lose power. We've asked today, is Jesus king? And yes, we found that he is. He's this heavenly, humble, humiliated and holy king. And if he is the true king, we need to accept the day that we are the criminals. But we are the criminals that have been atoned for at the cross by this amazing king. Is Jesus the king of your heart? Well, today it's time to take off the crown, to lay it at Jesus' feet, to lay down our lives and lay down everything for this king who laid down his life for us, that we might know him. Amen.